Thank you for tuning in to today's full episode of the Breaking Changes podcast. I'm your host and chief evangelist for Postman, Ken Lane. With Breaking Changes, we explore topics from the world of APIs, but through the lens of business and engineering leadership. Joining me today, we have Rico Cordova, head of content engineering for Samsung TV+. I found Rico's approach to building teams very solid, and I've been thinking about his views on dealing with our legacies ever since we first talked. I always start really simple with the basics. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Rico Cordova. I'm the head of engineering for Samsung TV+. Um, so I, I'm part of the back-end engineering team that you don't ever hear about. <laughs> and that's a good thing though, right? Because like we, we don't want any outages or issues or anything like that. And you're the person who's going to make that happen for me, right? Yeah, hopefully. That's uh, that's exactly right. If you ever hear about our team, it's probably because you got neck deep in something that's bad. So hopefully you'll never hear about us. So I want to I want to learn about your hear about your journey, because for me, TV is interesting as part of an overlap with with uh, online, the online world, entertainment so much. But the world's evolves with the Internet and kind of pushed us into this new realm so how did you get started in the, in the TV industry? Like what, what brought you to this role? Um, that's a great question. The, the journey has been long, but uh, in short, I found my way to the software development world from mathematics and electrical engineering. Um, I found the elegance of software so compelling that I just loved being able to basically create whatever I could in my mind in the real, real world. Um, and very natural uh, progression is through web development and you know I, I always kind of favored back-end frameworks that kind of stuff um, and that really drove me into the network of people that I could associate with that led me to Verizon which I joined the team uh, working on the uplink product which is an OTT streaming service um, that Verizon used for many years it's no longer with Verizon but that's how I eventually entered this space and I was very lucky in the sense that um, it was, a, you know, maybe arguably the most major player at the time. It was uh, the back end for a ESPN, ABC, Disney, um, thousands of news networks. Um, and, you know, it was it was a live streaming um, was really where they made their bread and butter. Uh, the sports events, uh, Super Bowl and NBA finals. Um, that was that was the primary focus for for wanting to put feature sets together and stability, because that was the offering that that service provided that no other service really in the space could provide that level or that type of, of feature set. Um, and then my, my, uh, I transitioned from there to Pluto TV, which was a natural transition. It was, uh, many of the same people that I worked with from Verizon were, were at Pluto. Um, and then from Pluto, I transitioned to Samsung. Um, and the role that I played at Pluto and Samsung are going to be very, very much they're the same role, um, is, they overseeing teams that that are in charge of the back-end delivery service um, and encoding processes and gestion processes. So this is from like the time video get, content gets created all the way to like we we we're actually seeing it. Is that whole delivery pipeline? Yeah, there's a. I mean, if you want to talk like video OTT streaming 101, um, you can think of it as there is some content partner, somebody who has stuff that wants people to view it, 
Um, and then you want to, of course, it, it depends on how you do it. There's ad, uh, ad driven or subscription driven. There's some sort of revenue model that you need to generate. I mean, it's a business. It has to be able to pay its people, all that. Um, and so once you figure all that out, you need to somehow provide all the data necessary for the company, the business, the, 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 you know, us, our product to be able to play that back for people, right? So that's an ingestion process. You give us obviously the video itself, but metadata about the video so that we can populate what they call the EPG, electronic programming guide, right? So when you're flipping through, you know what it is, who's in it, all those all those details, right? They, we need to be able to access that. And it's it's not something that you, you get access to and re-deliver out right away, right? You need to ingest that process, it, distribute it to all the arms of the ecosystem that you're trying to deal with so that all the different disparate systems know what to do with all that data. Then there is the process of actually getting it out, right? So we've now brought it into the ecosystem we know what to do with it and now we need to deliver it to you as the viewer so you jump on your tablet or on your browser or whatever and you access our back-end services that will deliver to you very specific pieces of information that put together rules that your player then knows how to interpret to give you the video back in the way that you want to view it um, and the teams that I uh, work with are very much the ingestion portion of that and then the playback portion of that. So there's a lot of other stuff going on in the middle and I'm on the, the tail ends of both sides. Wow. So, I mean, as technologists, we tend to focus on the technical details, the APIs. I'm guessing there's a nice spread of APIs across that, that, that spectrum. But how much of what you do is technical versus people-oriented teams? How, how, do you, how do you make this pipeline flow? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I am to emphasize that that whole middle section of ecosystem, all the disparate systems would not be possible if we didn't do correct APIs. Uh, so that's to highlight. APIs are important. Um, that's a great question, though, about the, the mix between the management and the technology. Um, I would say that really depends on the state of the team and what uh, initiative is being done at that moment. So to give you an example, um, if you have a stable team that has just tried and true technology, then, you know, when I'm managing those teams, I'm very much like a, peop, uh, a what they call them, player coach, where I'll get in, I'll do maybe 30% of coding, that kind of thing, and then the rest of it's on maybe architecture, a little bit of man people management, a little bit of process, um, you know, reviewing, making sure that what we're doing makes sense, that kind of stuff. But if you're in a uh, maybe an ecosystem where you have to grow teams very quickly, there's a lot of demand, new initiative, it's a new merger, um, something like that, then my technical involvement tends to drop significantly because there's way more overhead of um, trying to you know facilitate conversations between the two merging um, engineering teams, trying to identify what um, people will merge together to create what new scrum teams, all that kind of stuff. Um, it, so it takes a surprising amount of time, and if not done correctly, uh, you can fall apart, right? You, you're building a foundation on toothpicks, so that you, you really want to make sure that you employ the best practices and standards for building teams and engineering models and onboarding processes and all that before the managers, I would say, we what I tend to at least recommend to my managers is before you get too closely involved in, in the day-to-day, -day, make sure that we have all this other stuff stable so that when you 
leave for your vacation or you, anybody that you you don't you don't they the hit by a bus as gruesome as that is the hit by a bus test you don't want to fail that there's nobody that should be here that that knows so much about what's going on that nobody else knows about that if they were to leave suddenly for whatever reason we don't want to be in that scenario and so if you can build a stable engineering team around the philosophy of shared workload and no one person is the hercules among us then then really you can have then the opportunity to dive deeper into the code and, and do technical things. So it's kind of one thing and then the other. So I'm assuming it requires a lot of document. Everything's got to be documented. There's got to be good education re resources for everyone because uh, teams are turning over maybe a little bit. You got new people that need to onboard. So it's all got to be well, well defined, right? That's absolutely true. Uh, documentation is a challenge. A lot of engineers don't like to write documentation um, as much as they like to write code, and that's fair enough. But uh, the importance, especially these days, I think the the model of remote work becoming so normal that it's almost needs to be an option. Um, any any more the people have the opportunity I can do something, and I have the option to be remote at this company, and this company doesn't let me be remote remote is almost always the better option, right? Or at least the option for it, remote. Um, and so that that distance between us, you don't have the opportunity to rub shoulders and brainstorm and bounce ideas off of each other in a room together. So a lot more things need to be very deliberately documented step by step so that you can comfortably come in with confidence and get through this, the onboarding process and have enough confidence to actually then start contributing to something in production. Um, and and there is a there is a gap to overcome to build that confidence. And if you don't document correctly, I don't think you're going to get there. Very true. Yeah, yeah. Documentation is that critical. I would say tech to human bridge that is also often underestimated the the value and the importance of it. Um, and it and it really helps grease the wheels and get get people on the same page. So as you're as you're you're building out this and you get it dialed in, you build your team, you get, you get the processes all dialed in. A lot of folks approach me and say, well, you know, when are we going to be done with this API thing? When, uh, when do we just check it off? So if you set up this team and process and it's stable and running, you don't have to change or iterate on it after that. Right. Or, or is it just ongoing constantly and you have to constantly wow. iterate? If, if only it were, um, well, let, let me, let, I'm going to, I'm going to answer this carefully. There are certain scenarios and systems where you can or must have that level of terminated, you know, as an example, we're sending something out into outer space. We're not going to be able to iterate on that much, right? We need <laughs> to be able to have it solid and firm when we're done. Those cases aside, the reality I live in day to day, um, I have never yet seen anything that is just done. You're you're always going to have to be iterating on it. There's there's going to be bugs that arise. There's going to be new versions of the software that you need to be able to update. Those new versions may introduce new bugs. Like there's there's just a const. This is just the nature of the of the industry that we live in. But there are approaches to managing those types of systems as um, stable, steady state. A lot of times they're referred to as legacy, unfortunately. Um, ser services that allow you the overhead to maintain them, but they're not necessarily a huge time sink. They're not the focus, but the, the I think you'd have to... It's a fallacy, in my opinion, to think that you can ever finish your API and call it done. You're, you're always going to have to iterate on it. So you touched on something interesting there that I 
I am a big proponent of and and so you're always in forward motion and that's the reality that's inevitable and how you look back at, at our legacy I feel like it's very negative in how we look back at it and that's unfortunate as you said and when you think about the word legacy like like me as a as a as a father as a human being or presidents you know you want to leave a legacy like that's a good thing so like how yeah. did we end up with in this state where we see it as as a bad thing that's that's an excellent question too i think there's um in my opinion i think it's a combination of practical experience on legacy systems quote i'm i'm using air quotes legacy systems there um i think to myself the young version of myself what is it that i was enthralled by passionate about and reading somebody else's code that was written 15 years ago wasn't on high on that list right so i was never excited to to work on that kind of thing so you always tried to find the opportunity to work on the next new exciting thing um that i think motivates much of what we end up as culturally internally to the you know the group and and i and i should emphasize every team can have their own culture in this sense, right? These are just, these are these are trends that I've seen across many cultures that I've been involved with, is you get that trend of, well, people tend to like doing this more, and we, you know, we wanna make you happier than not happy, so we let you do it more than that. But there is an element of certain things in our job we have to do, none of us wanna do, but we have to. And you just try and find a healthy mix of those so that, again, no one person's overburdened Herculean efforts on those. Um, and, and that there's en enough shared um, tasks among the group so that no one person feels like they're doing too much in any one area. Um, I honestly think that's probably the biggest motivation behind the culture we found ourselves in, where we think of them as, as kind of, it's, a, it's almost a pejorative. And like you said, it's, it shouldn't be. Like the concept of a legacy is something good. It's something you want to leave behind. Um, so the way that I've... I, I don't like using the word legacy either, um, but what I've also tried to promote is the proper conversation around deprecation. Uh, we engineers like to solve problems and we can also become very attached to our solutions. And the easiest way in a, for a business is to be able to make very tough, quick decisions, cut ties, move forward with no lamentation. Um, no blame, no fuss, just, you know what, that's just not going to work today and we're moving along without it. But that kind of decision hits hard at home in the smaller, you know, in the team that owns that service. It, it, there's a sense of pride and ownership as well there should be. Um, so it's from a business, like my, my job as a managing or a director, I need to be able to know how to properly balance that ability to keep the morale up, the people interested in doing things. Um, not unnecessarily deprecating their their work, but also allow for enough agility in the business to be able to make those types of moves without causing problems with morale and having those conversations and making sure that people understand these decisions, making sure that they can be an owner of the transition or migration to the new solution, you know, something that will involve them so that they're not losing anything, they're more gaining something. Um, that's a little bit of the people management uh, balancing that you need to do in this area, I think. Um, but the deprecation concept, I think, is fastly underused in our industry. We tend to want to support an API or a feature in an API for ever. And you know what? It just isn't economically feasible after some point. You know, you, many of you guys will know some of the older browsers and trying to keep JavaScript 
compatible. It's a nightmare. And at some point, the best business decision is to say, you know what? We spend this many millions of dollars every year supporting engineering support, operational support for these things that we only see generating $5 million in revenue. It doesn't make any sense. We need to cut that support. And that conversation is very challenging because the, uh, you know, there's the, the customer uh, revenue aside, the customer impact, right? You don't want to lose any customers because they can get on the social media and start just railing you left and right. So from the product point of point of view, it's very much, oh, we don't want to lose that. But there's the operational, like how much money and you have to make that, com that conversation is very challenging. Interesting. So like, I mean, the way you, you describe how you assemble your team. So a lot of fo people focus on velocity, like forward velocity. So you built up a team, you get these processes and these muscles and everyone's exercising, kind of training in concert and you guys are able to deliver forward at this, this certain velocity. But you're talking about the, the legacy dependencies along with that, along that, that team's got to be equipped to think about and care about and then spend equal amounts of time on, on the forward motion because your forward motion's dependent on everything, all our baggage and everything behind us, right? Absolutely true. And depending on how the original system or systems were built, you have a lot larger or smaller tasks. So the, the concept of those APIs, microservices in general, um, you know, monoliths are not uncommon. You have uh, a startup of eight, 10, 12 people who are all just clamoring to get something created. And then when it gets to the point where a hundred people need to touch it, it was never designed or thought through and architected in such a way as to make a hundred people be able to contribute. Um, almost inevitably, that's going to be the case. And so there's that we need to figure out how to keep moving forward. We need to be able to grow our teams, right? We do need other people touching this, but we need to be able to do that safely. How do we start creating new, uh, say, just I don't want to. Sometimes you are able to just completely, you know, make a library out of something and put it off to the side. But a lot of times you have to create kind of from a, the ground up a small, what I call an evolutionary step forward, where you you take certain pieces of that monolith and create a, a, a microservice out of it. Find a piece of the team that you can carve out and maybe then devote as a primary owner of that new service. Still having enough legacy or, or you know tribal knowledge of how everything works but they can be the subject matter expert of that new microservice and that that is a constant like it's just peeling back layers on an onion um of this i don't onions traveling through the timeline of growth from acquisition and mergers along the way to uh high scale production you know big player you're going to go through that you have to peel away pieces of it and get them into um, isolated territories of, of ownership and specialization because it's impossible to have a hundred people know everything about what everyone's doing. Wow. Okay. So you just added another dimension. So we're, <laughs> we're this rocket ship flying through space. We're very focused on our, our aero, the, the forward motion and velocity, but we've got to be mindful of, of the, our baggage and our legacy and, 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 and our rocket fuel, I guess what got us here through time. But now we've got, acquisitions being flung at us, you know, at meteors and asteroids come and you've got to absorb that. And, and so the whole muscle and function of your team's got to be able to address all of that as one motion, not just the, the new features. Yeah. It, and it, and it requires a lot of coordinate. This is where 
um, the management teams, the better they work together, the I think the smoother this portion of the workflow can be. Um, and when I say management teams, like your program manager and your product manager, your engineering managers, when they can communicate well around, say, as an example, as a stakeholder, I, I from a product person might come in and say, I need this feature, I create this user story, and th that information, if it doesn't provide um, concrete enough goals, acceptance criteria that we can measure and then take action against those measurements at a later time, if you don't have enough of that in place, you're not providing yourself enough stable foundation to move forward. And and a lot of times there's this, I understand what you're saying. I think you understand, yeah, we understand what we're saying. And then we move forward like that. And ugh, that causes problems because maybe these two understand, but the people who are implementing or anybody along the path may not fully have that that context. Um, and so what I found, I'm, I'm a reliability engineer and I, I love that stuff as a mathematician. It just comes right at me. Um, but the concept of these indicators and objectives that you can then create thresholds against to, for your alerting. Simple example is I come to you with a request as a stakeholder saying, I need you to deliver X amount of things in Y amount of time. Yeah, that's great and all, but if I have to do that for 1 million people all at the same time or 10 million people all at the same time, there's scaling issues, right? The, the internet is not a perfect uh, ecosystem and, and there's going to be some amount of availability that's just naturally we're not going to be able to do anything about. Um, and so there's a lot of three nines or four nines. You may have heard of five nines uptime, all this. So if you were aiming at three nines uptime, even if everything was working in the code perfectly, we still expect some level of breakage for that. And we need to be able to account for that and tolerate it without disrupting the team. Like if you see something that has gone wrong in production, you can't just scream at the team to fix it because if it's only in 0.001% of the 10 million users, 10, you know, that's, 0.001% of 10 million is enough users that people are like, oh no, they could be upset, but it's not enough to disrupt the team, right? You've got to look at the, the numbers. Um, and when they have specific thresholds that they can attach to that, we can, excuse me, we can build, you know, burn down charts to look at when errors are coming off. Are they happening so frequently that we're going to break our SLOs and eventually our SLAs um, down the line? you know, within say a, a week or two, or is it something that we can tolerate for the, the entire duration of this next month and we can just put in a JIRA ticket and fix it later, that type of an idea. Um, and it's challenging to get enough details from the stakeholders up front to build that level of, of knowledge into your metrics, um, unless those stakeholders really know what they're wanting, right? Like they really have thought through and, and usually that just takes a conversation with, with engineers but if you don't have that good rapport among the managers, it's very challenging to get that conversation done correctly. Yeah, that's uh, um, one of the biggest challenges that I see folks, large enterprises have is a simple concept, seeing APIs. Yeah. So like being able to see an API and, and then what does that mean amongst different people? Because if you're a backend developer, like seeing an API means one thing. If you're a CTO or an architect, like seeing an API, there's different ways and different directions. And we may both say, or five of us say, yeah, I want to see that API, but like, how do you do it? And then how do you speak to that, that, that personality or role at a particular or stakeholder or at a particular part of the life cycle? 
But then you also kind of touched on, it's not just the producer side. It's not just us as operating. It's like, who's consuming it? How many, what percentage network global? Like it's, it's a balanced view of seeing APIs across the producer and consumer side to really understand what we need to care about and what, what we don't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're touching on some challenging topic. Yes. This is um, something that I've yet to see done perfectly. I don't know what a perfect outlook or outcome for this would be exactly, but um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me see how I'm going to answer that. Um, <laughs> it wasn't really a question to be fair. So well, yeah, no, but, but this is, it's so, it's such an important thing. It's, it's such an important topic to discuss. And, and the reason I say that is because you, you kind of alluded to, depending on the stakeholder, what they may want visibility into as far as the API will be totally different, right? Like myself as an engineer, when I when I want vis visibility into an API, I'm looking for your JSON output. I want the most raw of that data and I will do with it whatever I want to make it happen the way I want. But I understand that that's not gonna be an option for every every consumer or every stakeholder, right? They don't have the time or maybe the knowledge to do that kind of thing. So we need we wrap UIs on some of these API, right? We put documentation, Swagger Hub, Hub as an example, you know? Um, there are a lot of different methods for exposing what an API is, what it's doing, how it works, the actual literal functionality of it, just the theory of it, how it fits into the ecosystem. There's so much that could be said in that one general topic that you mentioned. And I think it's important to note that there's a, for me, a difference that is not often discussed in monitoring. There's monitoring as for operations and there's monitoring as a product. And the, the monitoring as a product, I think, is often left off the plate because the operational monitoring is what's the primary focus, making sure that we're up and running, making sure that those 10 million viewers are getting what they want. But the, the, the monitoring as a product is that ability for our stakeholders to see, have visibility into the steps they're taking to try and generate revenue throughout their ecosystem. And if they don't have the proper visibility at any given point, they can't make the proper decisions or you know they, they they don't have clarity to make those decisions, um, and that is often overlooked that that visibility at that layer. And so you say v, a CTO, oh, there's been so many times where I've had a CTO want to see visibility into my API, and I'm like, Ugh, you're a CTO, I know you have the chops, but direct visibility into my into my API isn't going to give you what you're looking for. I know what you're looking for, and what you're looking for is at that other layer. And it's very, like I say, very often left out of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. And the So monitoring as a product, I would say this goes well in hand with all. Treating APIs as a product, a, API product management is like the number one conversation right now that I'm seeing across the board. And it's it answers those questions. I mean, not that the CEO is going to come in, that outage you talked about, but is this costing us money? Is this, you know, is it going to make people bad, mad? How many, you know, like the, 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 in the moment decision, decisions and what you want to see as a product owner, the, what the product manager. And then, like you said, does this affect downstream? Can this be a ticket? Can we make the change in the next? Like, this is all part of that feed product feedback loop that has to be in place that we respond to in the moment or respond to per sprint or per release or whatever we're doing. Um, and without being able to see, you can't make the right decisions there. Yeah. And in my experience, inevitably, when you have a scenario where you don't have the right visibility, everybody errs on the side of caution. 
and that leads to 2 a.m. calls of my engineers unnecessarily. And that is what I try to avoid. Like ultimately my goal is to provide the engineers with as little disruption as possible to what their primary quarterly goals will look like. Um, if I can clear their runway and just shield them from all the unnecessary interruptions, we will achieve the best velocity possible. And a lot of times that shielding can be done by simply giving some proper visibility because then nobody needs to bug them. They can see by looking at that API UI or whatever, the documentation. Yeah, yeah, pretty powerful stuff. I mean, just really good level team level enablement, um, but helping them be more autonomous. I, I, I hear a lot of talk, one of the last conversations I had, interviews I did, there's a lot about self-service. So do you feel like a lot of the knowledge and the capacity that your team needs access to is, is needs to be self-service for it to be effective? Yeah, I was going to throw out that buzz, buzz, what's the two words, right? So I guess it's a buzz phrase. I was going to throw that out a buzz few, few uh, minutes ago because um, that, that to me is, is a, is a very good, um, I would say rule of thumb, something that, that may not always work every time, but if you have the option. So what I mean by that is, self-service as the way for your stakeholders to get what they need um we have or 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 clients even this is this is a, something we, we deal with as well uh suppose there's a series of metadata in the ecosystem that needs to be updated right so we i talked about that ingestion process they give you the video and all the metadata what if they need to change some of that um how would how would they do that some you know Traditionally, in the past, when it was very small in the 12-person team, they just handed over an Excel spreadsheet, and an engineer would go into the database and just update all the values, right? It, obviously scripted, but it, you know that's essentially a very manual process. Well, when you scroll to the point where you have dozens of, of content ingestions happening every day and hundreds of these updates happening a week, that manual is no, you know steps are no longer an option. We need to create some sort of self-service step. Um, and these these uh, layers on top of your APIs, or they'd actually the API themselves can be a level of self-service. That I think is very important. This is this is again where that level of product monitoring as a product, because your CTO may want to have visibility into something that you could facilitate with this, but they don't have the time to wrap it and make it pretty, and so you are obligated to, in some sense, create that for them. Um, but yeah, I, you, you nailed it on the head. So how do you how do you test and validate this because you're you're trying to automate and scale this and and someone may think they're doing the right thing but but it's incorrect data or anything so was how do you test and validate that things are are what they appear all along this pipeline That's a that's a good question so I you may have heard the Swiss cheese analogy where every layer along the way is like a slice of swiss cheese and they you know they have a few holes in them but if you line up several layers of swiss cheese hopefully no one hole can make it all the way through um i it's it's a it's a very simple analogy i know that it's more complex than that but that that kind of gives people a little bit of a visit, visit, visualization of what i'm trying to say here is you have unit tests right your developers putting in unit tests you have your uh your, your test engineers putting in integration tests and other types of tests Every step of the way, you're trying to find and close those holes and those gaps as best you can. Inevitably, there's going to be something that gets through. And the, I think for me, the important, the important part is dealing with that correctly when it happens and then having a proper postmortem and preventing it from happening again. Um, 
all of that with you know the no blame right we're here to just figure out what went wrong this layer of sliced cheese thing is a good analogy also because it emphasizes that it's no one person when there's a failure even if it was your name on that git commit it was a failure of all of us it was institutional failure because we should have processes put in place to prevent those types of failures and the important thing is to identify what went wrong how to prevent that in the future and then just make a simple change to make sure that never happens again and just move on with our lives um, but yeah that basically my answer <laughs> yeah no, I like it and I would to to bring it back to another buzz phrase that I hear a lot is shift left so when it comes to security it's a big one you're supposed to be securing things earlier on in the process have your security requirements as part of the requirements process and then equip developers as early as possible to do more with proven security infosec practices but and one because of the buzziness of it what i don't hear people talk about and what i heard you talk about is well, we got to have processes for dealing with these things when they happen, acknowledge they're going to happen and learn and grow from that and have a culture where that's acceptable, but we do everything we can to prevent it. So, so it's not just about moving things left and equipping people. It's, it's the full process and life cycle. Yeah. Good observation. I haven't, I hadn't really thought about much of the ops, like sec ops type of stuff. Um, that that prevents or prevents that provides a whole other layer of complexity. Uh, this is as actually if I could share just a, a, a small story about that as an engineering manager, I understand the value of providing all these security, uh, you know, like you say, writing them directly into our architecture and design documents so that we are thinking security first. Absolutely. 100 percent agree with that. Um, the challenge, though, that, that engineering managers have, and if you're anybody who's on the opposite end or just not in the engineering structure, please bear with us on this. We don't necessarily decide the, the priority of our work. And in fact, we don't. We don't decide that. The business decides that for us. And we do our best effort to, to do what the business tells us. And so if there are security issues that need to be handled, I absolutely want to handle them. But if the business is telling me that, no, 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 we want to do this instead, I have to do what the business tells me. And that causes a lot of um, friction sometimes between the engineering teams and the, the security teams or the, you know, SecOps or whatever you want to call them. That is, unfortunately, it's unnecessary. It shouldn't be there because it's not, it, that's not how the, the process would work anyway, right? You, the, any, a stakeholder doesn't just come directly to the engineering group and say, please finish, you know, do this work for us. They submit a work request. That request is then prioritized. And that's just the way it always works. And so I do my best to try and explain to the business on behalf of those teams why I think they should prioritize this work ahead of this other work. But if they decide to make a decision, I, I've got nothing, right? And that, that I think has been very challenging when you're saying like the security first, there are, there are things that I've seen implemented that prevent development work from being done because the the tribal version, the, the old way of doing it gave them too much access to this part of the ecosystem. But by cutting off that access, it prevents us from doing a release. And we can't have that, right? And, and those are the conversations that I find to be very challenging. Interesting. Yeah, I've seen the same struggles playing out at the API gateway layer because gateways were, were kind of, you bought the big appliance, it was a top-down decision and everyone had to like hang their stuff on the, the central gateway, but then microservices and 
kind of team autonomy came in and they're like, well, we're running Nginx and other smaller gateways in different groups. And, and then I'm seeing the same with governance play out where a centralized center of excellence is hand down, like here's the standards and guidelines and it's, and, and then they get pitchforks and torches from teams going on. Oh, no, we're not going to do that. Like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. And so like how I feel like there's got to be a balance to security standards governance all of it observability to to make sure teams are enabled and equipped and it's not just some centrally uh or or gate keeped type of process the centralization that the concept there um i've i've always been the proponent of no more standards than is necessary to make sure that everybody is on the same page um there are different ways of saying that like enough standards to make sure that everybody's doing the same thing, but no more than that, you know, things like that. Those are what I, what I tend to respond when I hear centers of excellence coming out and saying, blanket, we all have to use this method, this way of using Docker and Helm or whatever. Um, I always try and approach it as, well, that's going to work for most of the cases, but there are these older cases, these repos that were not designed with those modern sensibilities in mind that we need to be able to accommodate for, again, because the engineers can't stop. That's our, our primary goal is to keep those engineers moving. Um, and I think it's my job as an uh, engineering director or you know management to help other leaders understand those limitations and then adjust policies and practices across the business to better accommodate the reality that we work in. Um, it's, it's always one of those, you have a datum of and I'm a proponent of this. You have a datum of the ideal, um, and I, I, I'm a, I'm a nerd. Thermodynamics, the Carnot engine, is is that ideal engine. It's the perfect engine, right? And the existence of that in theory is worthwhile. It's worth discussing because you can then measure how close you are to that perfect. And without that measurement, that's the visibility I'm talking about. Without that measurement, you won't know how to best make your changes. And and for me, I think this this is this is an, a major part of that um, standards. You 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 set a standard because it's your ideal. It's what you want to get to. But don't expect everyone to be able to do it right away. Definitely not right away. Or maybe even some cases. I'll tell you what. You get me to some edge compute problems, and I'll tell you right now, there are going to be some things that are just going to not fly. You're just not going to be able to have that level of control when you get to certain types of scenarios. So you need to have a datum for your for your uh, for your perfection, but you also need to allow for not perfection and a process to allow for it. Wow, wow, that's a uh, yeah. I think that's pragmatic, realistic. That's honest. That helps us, um, I think, be stay truthful to it rather than just expecting perfection and and not never quite getting there, but understanding the spectrum of where we can operate, what's acceptable, what's not, how far are we from that that perfection? Wow, yeah, and it seems like you can create the optimal environment in this. I mean, and not that optimal is a constant; like it, optimal could mean different things in different moments. But do you feel like this allows you to dial in and give your team breathing room? I mean, do you guys have room to innovate? What does innovation look like because you're able to dial this in like that? Uh, that's a that's an excellent question too. The innovation I tend to leave to the engineering manager. So in my role, I, I manage several managers, and each of those managers have their own team or Scrum teams in some cases. Um, and I tend to let them decide what type of innovation they want. 
um, during our innovation period. So we have some time set aside every quarter for the teams to do some level of innovation for several weeks. And sometimes, I, I, I would say 50-50, that innovation time is and can be used very well for innovation things, getting the excite, you know, that whole concept of being able to just kind of take a step out of your normal, do something, shake off the cobwebs and just change it up. Very, very good for that. But at the, at the same time, there's a lot of pressures coming to these engineering managers to deliver things that they've committed to deliver that have not gone, gone the way that they planned. And now they're a little bit behind schedule and all this. And sometimes it's easy. It's, it's better overall for the team, for that manager to say, you know what, we're going to we're just going to miss out on our, our innovation or at least a portion of our innovation time and finish this up, get the monkey off of our back. Um, it'll all make us feel better having just delivered that and gotten it, you know, gotten it finished. Um, and so I think that cuts a lot into the innovation time that's available to us, but it's not necessarily a bad thing because innovation, one, I think is very good for the business. And if they really did want us to in have more time to innovate, they would allow that, right? Like they would, they would allow us to hire more people who are R and D teams or whatever. They can always make, they can facilitate that if they really want to. So it's really up to us to make sure that we're using that time for our purposes, building up that morale, right? Shaking it off, resetting everything. And a lot of that stuff can occur with just finishing up an initiative and just wiping your hands of it and moving on. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's an interesting balance and, and how it's got to be load bounced across an organization prioritization. There's a lot to think about there. Um, innovation um, beyond that, like, what do you do personally to uh, uh, keep you excited and passionate beyond just your work? And, you know, what what keeps you going and, and doing all of this? Um, you know, I I am I'm always just been a fan of learning. I think this is a common trait among a lot of people is just I'm anytime I get a chance to expose myself to new problems, new scenarios, new situations that I have not yet seen how to deal with, solve, whatever. I, I'm, I'm a sponge. I just want to see it happen, right? And so uh, from the technology side, you know, I've been in this technology for a while now, and, and you'll never cap out, right? In, in any industry, no matter what you're learning, you're always going to be able to learn more. Um, new frameworks come out every year, new technology, new best practices, new conferences. There's just never an end to that. But what I've found is that the amount of effort that I put into that. And so, you know, it's my job. So obviously I try and stay current on things and read blog posts and read on all the things and get at least a, an understanding of how the technology works in my space and maybe dabble with it on a Saturday afternoon to, you know, build a, something around the API. Uh, that That's very common. But I find that my time spent there, you know, 10 hours spent there is going to gain me a small amount of extra knowledge or extra expertise or extra value to the business or the team. Whereas if I spent that same amount of time learning something a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, but very relevant to the team, I can gain a lot more for us. And what I mean by that is uh, being involved with say in initiatives with other parts of the business groups. Um, if I can identify an, a, a potential partnership of services or something that the business really hasn't thought of or whatever, and there's an initiative there that I can help champion, I am going to gain a lot of experience about that. You know, the international business maybe, or um, just general project management and, and, and uh, team, pro you know, like uh, bringing together two parts of businesses, groups, mergers, uh, all of those things I think are the types of experience that 
as I grow now, I'm going to gain the most from learning about. And so I try and tend to focus more on those types of things, making sure that all the different teams across all the different uh, organizations know how to work with my teams and that they have the visibility and accountability outside to all those teams so that they are comfortable and confident that we're doing what we're claiming to do. Wow. Have, have you always been this curious, even as a kid and like in high school and stuff? I, I really was. Um, unfortunately, when I was younger as a kid, I didn't have um, uh, an outlet for it, I guess, or there was no, we didn't identify early that I was this curious, let's just say. I was just very active. Yeah. I was always doing things. I wasn't necessarily, I was getting into trouble. I was just a little kid always doing stuff, right? Um, and then as I got older, I found that there was a passion for mathematics. And when I opened up that passion for mathematics and really dove in, that's where I got my degree. Um, it exposed me to a level of insight and knowledge about the, the world around me that helped me develop more of that curiosity. So you get mathematics together with physics and I can, and I actually was, you know, I say electrical engineer, I started as mechanical engineer. So the first two, two and a half years of my schooling, I was mechanical engineer. So we did materials, uh, engineering, that type of thing. And so I know enough about a lot of things about like how materials behave under pressures, under tensions. And, and I can look at like a building, I can look at anything built in the real world and obviously I don't know, I have to look at the design to really know it, but I have like an intuitive understanding of how it works, why it was built that way, what they must have thought about during their designs. And I find myself just tumbling down those, those rabbit holes all the time. And so I, yeah, I just can't help myself. It's just a fascination for me to learn something new. I'm guessing that's a blessing, but it could also be a curse in some situations. <laughs> yes, very much. I, and I think, a lot of our idiosyncrasies are, are that. You have to learn how to um, properly manage them. I have to force myself to take breaks, meditation time, to, to calm it down, to wind it back down. Uh, my wife is fortunately just very good at that. She, she can identify if I've been spending too much time in the rabbit hole and she's like, all right, here's, some, here's a meal. We're taking a break. You're going to come with me to do this. you know. Um, and having that partnership really has helped me accelerate my career because I know how better to balance my life now. You just, you described my relationship with my wife as well. That's how she keeps me grounded, keeps me fed, keeps me um, here on this earth for the, for the, I think the next 40, 50 years, I'm hoping. So, well, this has been, this has been fascinating, man. I really enjoyed this journey with you. Yes. I appreciate you coming and sharing with me today. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Rico for stopping by. You can find more about Samsung at samsung.com and Rico's on LinkedIn. You can also subscribe to the Breaking Changes podcast at postman.com slash events slash breaking dash changes. I'm your host, Ken Lane, and until next time, cheers. Cheers.